0: I am, I'm very honored to be here, um, I'm, I'm excited about this morning, and I want to start with a question. So, the question is, what is the worst part of being a Christian? Just the worst part of being a Christian. I've actually asked a lot of people uh, this question. In my experience, the vast majority of people's answers fall into just one category, and, uh, and that is some sort of behavior change. So they say something like, oh, the worst part of being a Christian is not being able to fill in the blank, Uh, show that jerk driver how I really feel, you know? Or they'll say, oh, the worst part of being a Christian is having to fill in the blank, Uh, give away my money, uh, come to church, come to church every week for three years and listen to the senior pastor only ever talk about the book of Luke. Um, That one came up a lot, actually. Now, a a certain change in behavior may be the thing that annoys you most about how you've chosen to walk with God, but it can't be the answer to our question because no behavior is required to be a Christian. Uh, You can be a Christian and show that jerk driver how you feel. You can be a Christian and not show up to church. So, the hardest part of being a Christian has to be something that is totally inseparable with Christianity. A, a pillar of the faith that if removed, the whole, the whole religion crumbles. Uh, before I get to my answer, I want to read our passage for the day. And before I read our passage, um, I want to give a little bit of background info on the Apostle Peter. So, just so we're all reminded and on the same page. So, Peter was originally named Simon. Simon. Um, and, but Jesus changed, uh, Simon's name to Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but even for a disciple, uh, Peter was special. Uh, he was one of Jesus's, uh, he was kind of in Jesus's inner circle. He was one of his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Uh, he was present at the transfiguration. He walked on water briefly, but he walked on water. Um, and, Possibly the most significant, one of the most significant moments um, in Peter's life is talked about in Matthew 16. So I'm just going to read uh, this passage. We don't have it up on, uh, on the screen, um, but I'm going to read Matthew 16 real quick. Not the whole chapter. Um, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that phrase, and you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church is considered by Catholics to be Jesus ordaining Peter as the first Pope. And then Jesus goes on to give Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven and power and authority on earth. So even for a disciple, Peter's unique, Peter's special. Um, and and now we are going to get into uh, our passage for the day, which is uh, Luke thirty one, and this will be or Luke twenty two, verse thirty one, and this will be um, on the screen. All right. So it starts. He says, "This is Jesus speaking," and he says, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you." All right. This is not a good start for Peter. First off, Jesus is calling Peter by his pre-Christian name, which is exactly how you would expect it to feel. You don't really want Jesus calling you by your pre-Christian name. It's not a good start, okay? So he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Now, believe it or not, there's a little ray of hope in that last line, and that's the fact that that you is plural. So Jesus isn't saying Satan demanded to have you, Peter. He's actually saying Satan demanded to have you all speaking, referring to the disciples. So he's talking to Peter about all the disciples. And there are four times that you uh, pops up in this little section of our passage. Two of them are plural, two of them are singular, and they're just footnotes in the ESV, but I'm going to read them um, as if they were in the text, all right? So we're going to start from the top. "'Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat.'" But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So let's deal with this kind of strange comment that Satan has demanded to sift all the disciples like wheat. When I think of sifting, I think of my childhood on the Lake Bluff Beach uh, with kind of like a toy sifter. You pick up a bunch of nice dry sand, and it kind of gently and soothingly falls down and nicely separates out a few pebbles. Um, I can assure you that Satan does not have uh, pleasant, gentle, or nice plans for the disciples. Being sifted like wheat is not a gentle, soothing process. It's, it's violent. And you basically, after you beat the wheat and all this seed and chaff fall out, you have this mixture. The idea of sifting is that you're trying to get all the seeds up in the air so the wind can come and blow away the chaff. So you're just shaking violently this mixture. So what Jesus is telling Peter is that Satan has demanded to take all the disciples and just mix up their lives and that it's not going to go well. Now, you might expect the first pope, one of the leaders of the early Christian church and a disciple of Jesus, to say something spiritual or or Christian, you know, Um, something like, Lord, protect me from this. Um, Say that this isn't so, help me. But that's not what he says. Uh, What he says is, "Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death." Now, on its face, that sounds like a good thing. It sounds like a testament to uh, to Peter's dedication and faith. But if we think about what his heart is saying there, he's saying, uh, "Don't worry about me. I actually got it." Like. I'm stronger than you're giving me credit for. Remember, like I'm the one that was at the transfiguration. I sort of walked on water. You gave me the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Like I'm the rock, Peter. I'm good. I don't know what these other 11 buffoons are going to be doing, but I'm going to make it. And we see here that Peter views himself as the one disciple that Jesus doesn't need to worry about. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Um, now, we're going to skip down to verse 54 to pick up uh, with Peter's part of this passage again. In the, in the part that we're skipping, uh, Judas betrays Jesus. So, verse 54. Then they, the guards, seized him, Jesus, And led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Let's give Peter some credit here. He's following through. At this point, even after Jesus has been arrested, he's following Jesus. Where are the other disciples? Now, another account of this story um, says that another disciple is with him, most likely John, and we know what happened with Judas, so we'll kind of count him out, but there's another nine disciples that are kind of missing in action. Peter's following through. He's there. Verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I have a confession. When, when I, if I'm not careful, when I read a, uh, a passage of the Bible, specifically one that I know well, it will stir up almost no emotion in me. We've all heard this passage before. It's no surprise to us that that Peter denies Jesus. That didn't come as a shock to anyone. Um, however, that's not an excuse for us to ignore the significant emotion that is happening in this passage. The fact that Peter wept bitterly should jump out at us. Um, so... I can empathize with Peter here. I have denied Jesus in my life, and one one time uh, specifically stands out. I was at college, and someone walked into my room, and my Bible was laying out, and they asked me why I had a Bible, and my response was, oh, well, my dad's a pastor, as if it were his Bible in Iowa City that I had left laying out, you know? And they dropped it and moved on, and later when I was thinking about it, you know what my reaction was? I I felt ashamed, and I decided that next time, I wasn't going to deny my personal relationship with God. I wasn't going to do that. You know what my reaction wasn't? It wasn't to weep bitterly. There's there's something more going on with Peter here. He didn't just deny Jesus. There's more going on that caused him to weep bitterly. So let's try to empathize with what Peter's going on uh, feeling. Not only did he deny Jesus, but hours before, he believed and asserted that he was the one disciple that Jesus didn't need to worry about. He not only believed that he would never deny Jesus, he believed that he was the type of person that would never deny Jesus. And yet, when the moment came, he not only denied him, he denied him to a servant girl whose status would have meant that she could not have gotten him in trouble. He, he denied not that Jesus was God, but just that he knew Jesus, which wouldn't have been illegal, And he didn't deny him once, he denied him three times over the course of multiple hours. And so, after that's all done, and he kind of comes to again after looking at Jesus and hearing the rooster crowing, he's not only just ashamed that he denied Jesus, he's having a bit of an identity crisis. To make it worse, he was warned. Hours before, Jesus told him, hey, you're going to deny me, and it's going to be today. Basically what Jesus said was, hey, you just need to hold it together on your own without me for like a few hours. And if you can do that, then you're good. And he wasn't able to do that. And on top of that, the one person that he loves most, that he respects most, that he wants to impress most, and that he just wants to be comforted by in this moment of failure watched him fail, and is the person that is most directly offended by his failure. So when that rooster crowed and he looked into the eyes of Jesus, this just crushing weight came upon him. And Peter experienced fully the worst part of being a Christian. And the worst part of being a Christian is is realizing that you're more sinful and hopelessly broken than you were willing to to admit that without Jesus, you can't do the simplest thing right. A couple months ago, I had a long spiritual conversation with a non-Christian friend of mine, uh, who I, I love and respect. And they were explaining to me, um, he was explaining to me what his kind of spiritual outlook is, what he personally believes. And he started with this assumption that he made clear uh, he thought I shared with him, and it was that people are inherently good, that people are good. And then he kind of built his whole spiritual philosophy off of that statement. And so when he was done and I had asked a few questions, I took a moment to clarify that I don't agree with him on that. That I don't think people are inherently good. I think that people are inherently sinful. And that apart from Jesus, we have exactly a 0% chance of being able to earn our salvation. It sounds a little bleak, but Peter understood that fact better than most people, and his story ends well. Uh, after Jesus' resurrection, um, he shows up on a beach, and Peter is out on a boat. And when he sees Jesus, he doesn't take the time um, or doesn't wait for the nets to be pulled up and row in. When he sees Jesus, he just leaps from the boat and swims to shore. He can't wait. And when he gets to the shore, Jesus then gives him the opportunity to three times reaffirm his love for him, once for each denial. Peter goes on to preach at the day of Pentecost to lead the early Christian church. He does countless miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is eventually Uh, able to make good on his promise to Jesus when he is martyred for his faith, refusing not only to deny that he knew Jesus, but that Jesus is God even in the face of death. There are three points um, that I think that we can take away from the life of Peter, specifically in light of this passage. The first is that uh, recognizing the depth and pervasiveness of your sin is foundational is a foundational part of the Christian faith. Recognizing the depth and pervasiveness of your sin is a foundational part of the Christian faith. You cannot have a properly high view of God without a properly low view of your sin. And we see this in Peter's life. I, I kind of brushed over a verse earlier, and it's a beautiful verse that when understood, it turns this passage that's kind of about a dark failure of Peter's into one that's very hopeful and should be encouraging. Verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We remember the context of Of This verse, Jesus was just saying that Satan is coming for all of you and that all of you are going to fail. But his next line is not, but I've prayed for all of you. No, it's he's talking with Peter and he says, but I have prayed for you, you specifically, Peter, that when you fail, you'll be able to turn again. Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He knew exactly the type of person Peter was. He knew exactly that his failure would most directly offend him. And yet, even with that knowledge, he loved Peter and took the time to pray for Peter. So that later, when Peter was crushed and weeping bitterly because of his failure, he could remember what Jesus had said, what Jesus had prayed for, and he would remember that Jesus still loved him. And that love meant so much more now that Peter understood how unlovable he was. You cannot have a properly high view of God without a properly low view of your sin. I've I've never seen this so clearly illustrated as in a book I read my sophomore year of college. Um, can we pull up the, the graphic here? Um, so... It's the book called The Gospel-Centered Life, and, and here we have kind of like a, a timeline of a Christian's life, and we see we get to the point of conversion, and then there are these two lines that diverge. And on top, we have a deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holiness, and on the bottom, we have a deeper and deeper knowledge of our sin. So when we become a Christian, we start to realize that there's a, there's a gap between God and us. And that gap is bridged by the cross, by what Jesus did by dying for us. Now, if you have this high of a view of God and this low of a view of your sin, there's still a gap. The cross still plays a role. You can still be ridiculously appreciative of what Jesus did. But as your life goes on and you hopefully mature as a Christian something will remain true, and that is that your view of God will always continue to grow and become higher and higher. And as that happens, your view of your sin keeps going down. As you view God as more holy, then the sin that put him to death has to be worse than you are giving it credit for. And the reverse is true. As you realize how bad and evil your sin is, then the God that came down to die for it has to be a more gracious, loving God than you were previously giving him credit for. Peter understood, as Peter understood the depth of his failure more, his appreciation for what Jesus did grew. And he loved Jesus more as he understood his brokenness more. Point number two, God uses broken people exclusively coming to terms with sin can make us feel unworthy and bad understandably but I hope that the opposite is true I want you uh, to leave feeling more qualified to represent Christ and be used by Christ than when you came Uh, because we see that even the greatest Christians of all time didn't have it together and were arrogant and were humbled quickly and fell. I want you to feel more qualified uh, to be used by Jesus because it is a great trick in lie of the enemy to convince Christians that their sins disqualify them from being useful. Uh, imagine if Peter had uh, refused to accept Christ's forgiveness. Or imagine if the Apostle Paul had refused to forgive himself for his bloody pre-Christian life. Or how differently would the world look if Martin Luther King or Billy Graham or the person who invited you to church refused to be used by God because they felt disqualified. God uses broken people exclusively, and that means you. Point number three is that having your failure fully known and still being completely loved is the best part, the best part of being a Christian. We saw this uh, in the life of Peter because when Jesus showed up on that shore, he didn't wait. He leapt out of the boat and swam to shore. He wasn't ashamed of what he did. He wasn't worried that Jesus would scold him. He knew that Jesus understood his failure. He knew that Jesus understood the type of person that he was. And he just wanted to be with him. It's possible to experience a, a similar love today uh, with other Christians. A lot of you know uh, my story, uh, but I'll, I'll briefly catch the rest of you up. Um, there's never been a time in my life where I wouldn't have called myself a Christian. I grew up in the pastor's house and knew all the Sunday school answers and just always have considered myself a Christian. But my sophomore year of high school, my life visibly changed. Um, it was on a shig retreat, and our leader, John O'Mullan, stayed up just way past when we were supposed to be in bed um, with Nate Wells, Paul Ward, and me. And I. Remember that night, we played basketball. I vividly remember making a half-court hook shot to win the game. And, uh, and that caused Nate Wells to lose, actually. So he's in the back. You can ask him. That's, that's true. And, and that night, we also we decided that we were going to take our faith seriously, that we were going to do this right. We all knew the answers, but it was time that we actually start being a Christian, Um, That group met almost every week for years, and each of us shared our biggest hopes and fears and failures, and we all knew just the worst parts of each other, and we were all best friends. And I specifically remember a time that I was sharing this fear I had. And you know how when you get halfway through telling a story or sharing something, and you're like, wow, I just wish I had never started talking? Like this is this is making me look bad, this is embarrassing, and I just knew that those guys were were gonna kinda smirk and smile and be like, okay, like and I was I was just nervous and I just didn't want to be in the situation that I was in. And when I finished sharing, there was a moment of silence, and, and one of the guys said, Is that it? And it wasn't it wasn't a, a rude like, is that it? or like are you just going to keep piling on like no it was a very gracious like check whether or not i was finished sharing so that then they could start talking they they didn't want to interrupt me and they took a moment and they kind of encouraged me and then they moved on and it didn't ruin our friendship and it it just felt i felt so accepted and loved and and that unconditional love, that experience of that type of love with fellow humans, with Christians, uh, has helped me to understand a little bit better the type of love that God has for me. And it allowed me, it allows me to empathize with Peter in this passage. So uh, my time here is, is pretty much up, but I want to encourage you to embrace the worst part of Christianity. I I don't want you to shy away from contemplating and trying to understand better how horrible your sins are. And I also don't want you to shy away from opportunities to share those worst parts of yourself with close, trusted Christian friends. But remind yourself that in those moments when you can kind of really start to beat yourself up, that Jesus understands better than you how bad you are. And he still came and died. And, and knowing that, he prayed for you and he loves you. Uh, Peter's story ends well. We were focused on a dark part of his life, but Peter's story ends well. And if Peter's story can end well, that means that your story can end well too. And so don't shy away from the worst part of Christianity. Let's pray.